0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pilgrim Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Climactic Scenes! Dracula Unearthed! Fantasy Film 101! And Sumerian Stargates!
1: As our beloved and sleekly accessorized listeners well know, our heads are full of ideas for games. Uh, sorry, I can't hear you over all these game ideas. If you are anything like us, you've also got some great ideas for games bubbling in your cranial region. But
0: unlike excruciatingly humble podcast-hosting game designers like ourselves, you may not know what to do next. Atlas Games to the rescue. The White Box, created by Atlas Games and Game Playwright, is a game design workshop in a box. It contains a ton of generic components, Components like meeples, cubes, dice, tokens, and discs. And includes a 200 page book of 25 essays about game design and publishing. With topics like refining your design, playtesting, testing, crowdfunding, and how to work a convention. In short, the white box has everything you need to get your game idea out of your head and onto the table. You can get
1: the white box right now everywhere tabletop games are
0: sold. Seriously, I can't even hear you over these game ideas.
1: The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive once more welcome us into the friendly confines of the gaming hut. And here in the gaming hut, look what we have, Robin. We have requests. We have all requests. Nothing but requests. Not just for this hut, but for all the huts. And amongst our requesters is friend of the show and Patreon backer, Trungboy, who requests... When designing a climactic scene, what kind of balls-to-the-wall ideas do you like to include to make it super memorable? And I love the priors in this. Excellently <laughs> done. Such a great thing. Uh, we basically can just repeat the question in increasingly loud and excited voices, and we have the answer.
0: Yes, exactly. Building ever to a crescendo. So I guess the first thing uh, that I would say is that I want to be careful to make sure that whatever happens has room to be the idea of the players or, in some cases, to feel like the idea of the players so that it can't be a, here is this climactic sequence that I have pre-written with all of these great ideas, and here, players, is how you are going to fit into it. Because, of course, especially if the players have had a sense of freedom and motivation and agency throughout and then they come to the canned climax where the GM is obviously uh, putting the big old thumb on the narrative scales, Uh, that's going to be a bummer no matter how big and cinematic and uh, conclusive the ending is. So the first thing I always uh, do is uh, look at whatever idea I have and ask, what happens if they don't do this? Will they find another cool thing uh, to do that will feel equally climactic? And how can I ensure that they are deciding to have this happen rather than having me just throw something uh, exciting at them that they are then basically uh, spectators for.
1: Yeah, I mean, you have to make sure that when you, as uh, the question puts it, design the climax, you make sure that you're not designing the story that leads to the climax. You can say, well, at the end of this campaign, they're going to have to fight Dracula, so how do I make that fight a super memorable fight? But you don't say... In order to fight Dracula, they have to do these five things in a sequence because, A, players never do them, they never do them in a sequence, and they resent being made to do things in a sequence. So you just have to be ready with the scene at whatever moment the players get there, and that usually means having sort of a menu of, did they attack Dracula when he was unprepared? Is it daytime? Is it nighttime? Has he had time to summon his army of wolves? What's going on? you know uh, what kind of uh, reinforcements in in general does he have uh has he had time to complete the enchantment of the blood red moon you know whatever it happens to be that will change the quality or the qualities, not necessarily the quality, of that scene in ways that are going to drive play in it. So you need to be ready to sort of roll with your punches. So no matter how beautifully uh Johnny Toe-like you've orchestrated that last fight, be prepared to unorchestrate it in a tear-and-hurry if the players say, you know what, we're going to blow up the ceiling and come down on abseiling ropes. You're like, all right, there we go. Uh That changes everything, and you have to be ready for that to happen, and also not send any sort of shutdown-y message to the players, because uh, they understandably resent that, and the whole point of the game is to sort of, you know, hit the dice and see what happens. That applies both to the GM and the player's obvious statement, but there you are. So I would say one of the things that you can prepare, though, is uh, what they call in uh, military science channelizing, such that. If there is a werewolf on the ceiling and an alligator man in the sewer, maybe the players will say, let's just go in the windows like normal people. And then (laughs) you can have planned Dracula to be ready for that attack because he put the werewolf on the ceiling and he put the alligator men in the sewer. So he knows that people... Are either going to come through the windows, or their blood will slowly drip through the ceiling as the werewolf eviscerates them.
0: Now that we've established that, you know that your really cool idea has to be really cool ideas, uh, and you have to be prepared to uh, come up with yet another idea depending on what the players decide to do in, in the climactic moment. Uh, to take a step back, the really exciting uh, thing that I think lends a sense of, of climax and conclusion to a long running campaign is not the ultimate episode, but the penultimate episode, the one that creates the sense that everything is now accelerating and we are uh, moving into the final chapter and things are starting to really matter. And that often it is that episode that makes all the difference in terms of how exciting the final thing has to be because the the final confrontation, basically, you know, they kind of know what it's going to be, right? If they know who the main villain is, it's Dracula. They... Can they're pretty sure that they're going to wind up fighting Dracula. And yeah. so the question is, what leads up to that that makes this their particular fight against Dracula and not just, you know, oh, we did a bunch of stuff and, oh, Dracula's here. So uh, the penultimate one is the one where I will try to uh, reveal a secret that I managed to dangle in front of them without them ever quite uh, realizing what uh, the deal is with that, and then uh, look for other ways to create uh, a sense of, uh to use a classic writing term, accelerating stakes. And so, Ken, how how, how would you go about uh, creating the feeling of, of things really starting to matter now before you get to the, the final scene? I mean, one of the ways
1: that you can do that is with NPCs who are either in worse trouble as the bad guy's plan gets more intense or are you know, flocking to the character's banner because they know this is the final fight or in some way reacting in the same way that, you know, the birds fluttering up out of the uh, uh building know, oh, time for a gunfight. Um, You have the same sort of action with your NPCs. You can establish that. You can also, of course, just raise the stakes. I mean, that naturally happens at F20 because you start off, you know, bonking on carrion crawlers and grub rats at first level. But by the time you're 15th level and you're going to have the big showdown with the Lich King, that, you know, it's the showdown. Cause look, you're 15th level. You finally got Rod of Lich King smiting. Time to get and go. So in many cases, the game system will tell you when it is. And in a, uh, sort of more story based game, uh, your gumshoes and calls of Cthulhu, the, uh, the pace of the investigation will tell them that, that it's like, well, we've tracked him to his lair. This is where the, the fiend is hiding out. Uh, we've, you know, burned out all of his other hideouts, uh, in London and wherever else. We know he's in this castle in Transylvania. We got to go to it and get it done. And so the sort of logical progress of the investigation tells the player characters. You can also have sort of the standard gothic tropes of the weather showing you. So, oh, all of a sudden a giant thunderstorm breaks out. That's totally cliche, but it also totally works because uh guess what? There's. You know, seven million years of evolution telling us thunderstorm mean danger, and that can still work at the table.
0: Right. Uh, look also for ways to indicate that the wider world is being affected, that other people, other than just the player characters, this isn't uh, necessarily going to fit every sort of game, because sometimes it is just a game of, you know, you're the six people in the world and you're all that matter. But in a typical adventure, there is a sense that uh, things are... Also happening on a national or a global or a cosmic scale, and that what you're doing uh, it reflects that sense of, of accelerating uh, hazard or danger, so you can start to see that. You know, not only is there a thunderstorm, but the, you know, the lightning strikes have set the city on fire and that you know that this has something, it's not just pathetic fallacy, but you know, Dracula is responsible for uh, having done that. And, uh, I guess we're going to be mentioning him a, a lot this episode. Yeah. Maybe we should switch to somebody else. Um, <laughs> and uh, to return uh, briefly to another uh, point that I, I kind of slipped past, the idea that if you can look for a way To deliver the expected in an unexpected manner, right? This is the secret of uh, satisfying pop culture storytelling is that uh, you would be disappointed if it didn't wind up uh, with a a big fight with Dr. Doom at the end, because you know, it's a Dr. Doom story. But you would uh, likewise also be disappointed if that's all there is so that, you know, something happens in the lead up that sort of changes the whole significance of what's going on and, uh, and makes it bigger. Another thing it would do is that when you do finally get to that scene, it might be a big fight. And if so, it should really be an awesome bravura fight that is very uh, challenging for the uh, characters to get through. And, uh, it, uh, is one where, you know, maybe one of them will, uh, Undergo a, a horrible death with a moving speech at the end and, uh, if you're playing feng shui, then canto pop music plays uh, over the uh, death montage. Um, or just as easily, sometimes the exciting conclusion is not a fight. It's just a fun climactic moment and one that you just let the players describe and that that will give them, you know, an equal sense of conclusion that it isn't always a battle against the Lich King, but it can just be something that is very emotionally impactful. Um, and so that is is also something to shoot for, is ask yourself, what would a really cool climax that is driven by the players that isn't a fight be? And that might well be something that will stay with them uh, longer than, a, oh yeah, it's the end of a campaign, so there's a big battle.
1: The uh, other thing, obviously, in addition to the sort of outside stuff, uh you can make sure that that specific fight is one louder uh than your regular fights are so if you're thinking well we always sort of have this happen mix it up uh that that's a great way to have your boss monster and his sub monsters provides a changing tactical situation set it on the lip of a volcano so that there's a real strategic problem you you one false move and you fall into the volcano and die or um have a a, a countdown clock in the background so that yeah maybe we could just um uh dps dracula to death but uh we only have 10 uh rounds to do it before the rite of the blood red moon completes and he becomes supreme lord of all night and each time you do a a a thing in a camp in a combat that sort of gets the player's blood up make a note of that and do that again and louder in the final. So if they are really excited by machine guns and that always sort of gets everyone's uh, blood a pumping, then make sure that uh, Dracula has got a couple of Romanian army squads up on the rafters uh with uh, covering machine gun fire. And that gives them a great tactical thing to deal with. And they're like, Oh man, we were going to save this uh, Molotov cocktail for Dracula, but we kind of need to take out those machine gun nests. And that adds decision-making, which of course, creates the illusion of choice even within the combat. It's not the illusion. It's the actual choice within a combat. But even if the combat was a little bit channelized or a little bit, yeah, we have to go to the castle and fight Dracula because that's the end of the campaign. Then once you've presented a world of tactical choice in the battlefield, even if it's a hosing uh, circumstance that forces them to choose, they still get to choose. They still get to decide how do you deal with that hail of gunfire before you even get to the vampire part.
0: And another thing to look at is the personal stories of all of the player characters and how the climax could possibly resolve those so that if you have, uh, you know, the one character who is in uh, in love with the uh, woman who's been turned into a vampire, guess what? She shows up as a secondary threat. Uh, if there is a, you know, a character who's always been afraid that, uh, you know in the final clutch, uh, he is a coward. You present us you know, you try to think of different ways to make that happen during the moment where they have the, the choice between, uh, heroic self-sacrifice or, or cowardice or, uh, whatever it is, whatever that, but, you know if their drive all along has been uh, to uh, set aside all personal considerations in order to achieve this goal uh, also the coda is very important after a, a climax and so you know the moment for that player may not be the big fight at the end but afterwards okay you've won now what your whole life has been uh, designed around uh, beating this particular foe uh, what do you do now so uh, as well as uh, paying attention to the lead up the other side of the climax the uh the coda where everything is put to bed is another place where you can look for ways to uh, give the tactical side of things, if you have one at all, an, an emotional resonance that is specific to the character's plot line as they've set it up th- over the course of the campaign.
1: And I guess the last thing that you can sort of think about is, not the last, but another thing you can think about is uh, special effects, right? I mean, that's how you know it's a big fight at the end of the Marvel movie is that suddenly everything is CGI. Well, you sort of want the opposite of that and that you want to keep it grounded and real, but you also want the possible effects that happen, whether it's your magic or your gunfire or whatever, to have bigger more exciting consequences. So again, if it's a gunfight, may, maybe there's some tanks of propane scattered around the room. If it's a magical duel, uh, you're over the altar of, uh, the, the, near Gaul. So the dark magics will twist, uh, all magic cast in the area to a strange and bizarre degree. And maybe you have to, you know, roll an extra die 20 and just for scope of, uh, effect. And, uh, if you roll a 20 on a 20, then it's like, Holy crap, you may have taken the whole top of the mountain off. But something that raises the, the stakes at the table, as well as raising the visual stakes, is something that can uh, provide a, a sign that we are in the, in, the real, uh, in, in the real battle now, not the sort of um, 10 by 10 room stuff.
0: Right. So in summation, the question to ask yourself is, what's the biggest, most surprising, and most emotionally resonant way that I can stage uh, this uh, final event assuming you even know what it is, based on what the players decide to do. And on that eternal note of Jam Advice, it's time for us to uh, slink past this commercial to see what lurks on the other side.
1: In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia.
0: Yeah, but there's more to that story.
1: In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the
0: Cthulhu mythos. A government program named majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural a government program named delta green tries to destroy the unnatural in the fall of delta green you play the agents of delta green caught between
1: your oath to america and your duty to humanity caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions
0: written by kenneth height the fall of delta green adapts arc dream publishing's delta green the role-playing game to the award-winning gumshoe engine the Fall
1: of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction.
0: Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter.
1: The Fall of Delta Green, available for pre-order now in the Pell Press Store.
0: It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? It's time once more to enter the Horror Hut, we hear a creaking, and the creaking is the creaking of leather bindings opening. We hear a clanking. That's the clanking of the cost of buying expensive rare manuscripts, because we have a particularly literary version of the Horror Hut at the behest of Patreon backer Samwise Kreider, who asks, how might scholarship on the Icelandic and Swedish versions of Dracula affect An ongoing Dracula dossier campaign. He has a second question, but uh, this first question is one to uh, sink uh, our teeth into, or rather your teeth can, first. Right.
1: Um, To begin with, uh, it was discovered uh, not too long ago that Dracula was published in Icelandic. And that there was a forward to that uh, publication written by Bram Stoker. The forward was discovered in English in 19, I think, 86, I want to say. And it mentions Jack the Ripper, and that just sent everyone into a giant tizzy. And they were just super excited and dancing around and just grinding that forward down for, for chaff and rubbing it into all the corners <laughs> of scholarship that they possibly could. And then my man, Hans Cornel de Roos, who said, what about the rest of the Icelandic Dracula? And went and got it. And it's a book called Makt Powers of Darkness. It was published uh, first in a magazine in Iceland, Fjalkunen, and then was published as a book. In 1901, and was translated by a guy named Johann Valdemar Asmundsson, who conveniently died the year after the book was published. Dun dun dun. dun, dun, dun. And it turned out once someone, in this case Hans Cornel de Roos and John Edgar Browning, translated the Icelandic version, they discovered it was very different from the English version that the chapter set in Dracula's castle was much longer and then when he gets to England, it's more choppy and Renfield is uh, gone away but instead Dracula has a satanic cult that he's meeting with who are murdering uh, people to sort of get ready for Dracula and they're maybe behind Whitechapel or maybe behind the Thames torso killings and it's all very exciting and then it's very telegraphic. It's not the sort of lush uh, epistolary version of Dracula that we have come to know from the original 1897. It's only half as long uh, and is therefore considered basically to be Asmundson going a little bit nuts with the first exciting part of Dracula, then either getting bored or realizing that it wasn't selling papers and just racing through the last half and being done with it. And the interesting thing right. there- so he wasn't there- so much
0: translating near the end as he was uh, rewriting and reshuffling and uh, also radically uh, chopping. Right.
1: And he was, he was adding stuff at the beginning and the question was how much of the stuff that he added was out of Valdemar As- Asmundson's crazy head and how much of that was from Stoker's notes because things that showed up in the Icelandic Dracula were from Stoker's notes that we know because we have Stoker's notes and we've seen Stoker's manuscript now. So, and by we, I mean scholars, not me personally. And so the, uh, that's where it lay. And everyone was very, very proud that they'd found the Icelandic version until a Swedish man, uh, named Rick, Rickard Berghorn said, Icelandic, that name sounds super Swedish. And it has the same title, uh, Morkrets Maktur. I wonder if it's connected. And he went and he looked. And sure enough, uh, Makmir Krana is actually a Icelandic translation of the Swedish translation of Dracula from the newspaper Dagen and also in the newspaper Aften Bladets Havveko Uplaga. Uh, the, this translation began in 1899. This seems to have been the first translation of Dracula, uh, that we know of. There may be a Hungarian Dracula that's out there floating around. People have sort of looked for it. The one Hungarian Dracula they've found is pretty much just the, st- the same. Uh, 1897 Stoker, English Dracula only in Hungarian.
0: Uh, Annoyingly
1: a proper translation. Annoyingly a proper translation. But the exciting, uh, Swedish translation is double the length of regular Dracula. It's, um, uh, super big. Who would be crazy
0: enough to double the length of Dracula, can? Who would
1: be crazy enough? 25% please people. That's as long as you need to get. Um, now, the, uh, the the double length is according to character count, not word count, and character count in Swedish. I don't know if the average Swedish word is longer than the average English word. It kind of feels like it is, but I'm not a native Swedish speaker. I only love all native Swedish speakers. So that's my pin in that. But it is longer because it contains not just the blown up huge uh, first part, where Dracula's castle is the host to Harker and the brides have become one beautiful blonde lady bride who is identified, by the way, as the Countess uh, Dolingen from Dracula's Guest. Uh, The short story that people think might have been a cut first chapter, except that doesn't explain everything either. And uh, there is lots more stuff in the London chapter as well that, as I say, goes in with the notion where he's building a conspiracy of high-ranking aristocrats and politicians uh, with a sort of an evolutionary tinge to it uh, for uh, fun. His name is Draculitz in Swedish, not Dracula which is strange as heck. And it also mentions uh, news of the day from 1899 that the translator slipped in. No, we know that uh, some of that was written by the translator because it couldn't have been written necessarily by Stoker. But again, a lot of this is stuff from Stoker's uh, notes. And so the possibility of a big Version of Dracula's manuscript of Stoker's manuscript that got pared down by Stoker to become the 1897 manuscript. But when translators said, "Can we see your manuscript?" You just sent them the old full handwritten version that they. With with a warning,
0: this is in English, not Swedish. In English, English, not Swedish.
1: Swedish. There is. A lot of people used to say H.P. Lovecraft was talking nonsense when he talked to a woman named Edith Dow Miniter who claimed that she had seen the original manuscript of Dracula and that Stoker had tried to get her to edit it and that she refused because it was a giant mess and he wouldn't pay what she wanted him to pay. Uh, and people were like, oh, Lovecraft, you're delusional. That never happened. Well, Stoker was in Boston and he knew Mrs. Miniter and the year's checkout. It could still be a delusion. We still have no proof, but that does imply that there was a larger, fuller manuscript of Dracula in circa 1892, 1893 than the version that gets published in 1897. And that it may be that large manuscript, uh, the, the mysterious, uh, a big manuscript that got translated into Swedish with some additions. And in the beautifulest part of all of this, the Swedish translator is anonymous. Uh, their name is A-E, and we don't know if that means that they are just A-E. That's their initials. We don't know if their name was Anne, and they just cut out the N-N so that people wouldn't be able to guess, or um, uh, that it was Alice, and they cut it out and couldn't guess. But the A-E is a mysterious figure that no one knows who it might be. But the guy who sort of discovered the existence of the Swedish or remembered it, didn't discover it, it was in libraries, uh, Rickard Berghorn speculates that it was a woman named Anne Charlotte Leffler, who was a, a person who wrote feminist dramas for the stage, which is not exactly the person that I would think she's going to put sexy lady vampires uh, uh, drip and drool all over Harker. Uh, but maybe Swedish feminism was different in 1893 uh, than it is now. Um, and we know that her family, the Leffler family knew Bram Stoker's family because they wrote letters back and forth. Uh, so there is a possible connection there that is, I think a bit of a thin read to hang that on, but we don't necessarily have any way to dis- determine one way or the other. Uh, my man, Hans Cornelius, uh, Derus' theory is that the Aftonbladet uh, had an employee named Albert Anderson Edenberg, and that Albert Anderson Edenberg often signed his articles AE. And there you go. But it's like with a with dots and capitals, and it's differently orthographed. So who can say? So I think that the case is a little bit better for it to be Anderson Edenberg than it is to be Alice Leffler but, or Ann Leffler rather, but I certainly don't have enough knowledge of Swedish journalistic personalities. And it could have just been a horror fan in Sweden named, um, uh, Alice who got hired to do it. And because her name wasn't anything particularly famous, they just, or because maybe she was married and her husband didn't want her writing sexy vampire stuff. Uh, she said just take my, uh, you know, put me in a pseudonym and they just did that as a sloppy pseudonym. I I don't know if we will ever know unless someone goes, I guess, to the pages of the, the, the you know, financial records of the Afton and figures out who they paid to do the um, uh, translation.
0: So that's the uh, involved history of uh, these uh, documents. And uh, the question then that I think Samwise wants you to tackle is how do you take all this extra material and put it in a Dracula dossier campaign?
1: Well, the first thing is you got to put Sweden in now. We were very, very proud of ourselves for putting in Iceland and finding all manner of great connections between Dracula and Iceland. Well, now you get to add Sweden um, uh, because it turns out the Icelandic uh, material was a head fake and that the real material, the extra material came from Sweden. So that's where the leak must have happened. And so that means you have to start digging into the history of the Swedish Secret Service. We know that, for example, um a guy named... uh I believe it's Theodore Palm, uh, founded, uh, the Swedish secret service in the thirties and he was an occultist. So if there is a prior occult secret service behind him, uh, that was going on in the 1890s, they might be part of it. Uh, you would need, uh, to look at count Magnus, uh, because that's the other scary thing out of Sweden. And you can tie him into the, uh, into the Dracula dossier mythos now in a way that we couldn't back in the day, because it would have been a reach even for me, um, but uh, Sweden is is pregnant with with creepy monsters and, and uh, horrible things. They have their own uh, local vampire, the Nick, uh, which is the standard sort of Scandinavian uh, water vampire. And so we would be able to sort of take the Nick uh, reference out of Iceland and put it in Sweden. And I'll bet there's vampire pools aplenty if you dug down into Sweden. But yeah, a trip to Sweden is in order now um, instead of a trip to Iceland or in addition to. So sort of the. First thing is to go through wherever you see Iceland, just cross it out and write Sweden, or just assume that Iceland was the real thing and that the Swedish documentation was the head fake if you want to use the, the material as written.
0: Right, because uh, if you've already thrown in Iceland, you don't have to go back and, and make it Sweden. And so the next question then is, this is the second part of the question, what's going on at Project Edom that has led to these new versions of the dossier uh, being released? Uh, so I guess initially well, I think there was... we is- both know the answer
1: to that, Robin. Pardon me? It's, it's Brexit. <laughs> there, I mean, Brexit seems to have started a civil war in the English civil service between British civil service between people who are reluctantly going along with uh, the prime minister who is reluctantly going along with the referendum and people who are fighting it tooth and claw in leaks and um, uh, back channels and all manner of things like that. So why wouldn't Edom be split between Brexity Edom and not Brexity Edom? Uh, I don't think that there's any, like, true Brexiters in the civil service at all, but there's, you know, maybe one or two, but there's the reluctant ones you're sort there's of... There's the, um, let's go
0: along with this bad idea and let's stop this bad idea. And let's idea. stop this bad idea,
1: exactly. And I think in Edom, there has been some sort of, of, of Brexit, uh, uh, squabble that has caused them now to dump out the Icelandic and Swedish editions of Dracula as a sort of warning shot that if you keep doing this, whichever this is, and I don't have a side as to whether it's the Brexity ones or the not Brexity ones that are doing the leaking, if you keep doing this, we have more dirt that we can release through channels. And so rethink this. And so I think that there's actually a civil war within Edom, and this is a real opportunity for your um uh, for your characters to take advantage of those uh of those uh, fissions between Edom and maybe get some hot Duke on Duke rivalry going that you can slip between the cracks of to get your Intel and your active uh, measures.
0: Well, I guess if you're an anti uh, vampire uh, force within uh, Edom and you want to, you know, you've learned the mistakes time after time of allowing uh, vampires onto uh, British soil Mm. that you may be looking at the channel and thinking, what can we do to make it much more difficult for, Vampires to easily transit um, using the, the channel tunnel. Mm-hmm. And so let's, uh, let's mess this up. So it's possibly, uh, you know, that the, the forces that want Brexit may be trying to sort of, you know, go back to the olden days when a vampire had to get on a rickety boat and uh and hand over and so, and
1: when you had you could have the customs officials go and inspect all the mysterious crates of dirt that come from fellow eu member romania
0: right and uh probably so they uh, object to you know the free flow of goods and the free flow of people so uh they may be trying to <laughs> because what they really object to is the free flow of vampires right or <laughs> uh they could be you know uh using the vampire threat which of course is uh you know always been you know kept under under wraps as a pretext for uh you know moving people in the in the high echelons onto their side and they may just have the uh, you know the old fashioned goal of trying to collapse uh, europe and the european alliance and nato and all of that stuff and they could be uh, equally well using uh you know a trumped up vampire threat because after all dracula did still get to london mm-hmm. uh that uh you know that may be a, a pretext that they're using in order to uh, motivate people within the shadow world to support Brexit. So it's uh, it's difficult to say. So what is specifically in the uh, Swedish version that the, the release of which changes things in the, the shadow world of, of intelligence that are aware of vampires and, and dealing with vampires? Well, I have not seen the Swedish version, so I don't know.
1: But there are names of the various characters within the cult of Dracula and a reference uh, that does seem very much like a, a flag, uh, to something called the Orlean Conspiracy, which is the brief conspiracy in, um, 1898, uh, to put the, uh, Duc d'Orléans on the throne of France. And, uh, that of course went nowhere because by 1898, no one wanted a king in France anymore. Yeah. And, and so, he was
0: a particularly shabby individual as well. He was not yeah, well, well suited like, for that. Yeah. that much that like job. the entire Orlan
1: dynasty. It's yeah. not like there was a good one that they decayed from. They were all scum. Uh, well, and much. they had to
0: run out of bonapartes before they would, yeah, before the, they'd go back to the Orlans. Anyway. But, but that's, a, that's but an entire that side genre. The, the inclusion of the Orlan conspiracy is,
1: th- very much an indication that something is up that that very much seems to me to be a signal uh the other uh, possible thing is the the specific names of the specific uh, members of the satanic cult of dracula uh if some of those names could be easily um uh, traced it, it might be a way to put pressure on the various aristocrats who were part of dracula's uh, establishment in 1897 and their heirs and assigns and them if they survived uh in vampire way uh, in the present day.
0: So really the thing to do is to figure out whether your players are uh uh think Brexit is, is a smart idea or not, and if they uh, don't, uh that you uh have this uh conspiracy, this uh Draculaist conspiracy uh attempting to uh break up Europe and uh, your job now is to go and, and uh hunt down the descendants of that conspiracy and see what they're all up to and figure out exactly what Dracula's interest is in Brexit might be. And and now that your characters have an assignment, it's time for us to head on through this commercial and see what lies on the other side. Kent, what historical parameters pertain when you add pirates to your game? Well, you have to begin with a systematic
1: uh, destruction of state power That sounds a... fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume
0: 2 of The Best of Phoenix, available in PDF at Drive-Thru RPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. Logically
1: related, but related by their love of role playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by
0: name, and don't forget that's F E N I X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English. Not Swedish. Keep this show from spiraling into
1: anticlimax by joining such Patreon backers as Jim Crocker,
0: Joe Webb, Ludwig Chavant! Phil Groff, and Rafe Ball.
1: The whir of film passing through the projector, the crunch of popcorn, the smoke lazily rising in the beams. And whatever that is under our seats, welcome us in once more to the center aisle of the Cinema Hut, where Robin and I address a question or suggestion from Patreon backer, Corey Pierno, who wants us to take our patented 101 technology and apply it to the fantasy film sub-genre. Uh, Robin, I think this is going to be another one of those where you and I have a super overlappy list, not least because they're... There may not even be a dozen good fantasy movies.
0: The the canon is small. And I yeah. think, uh, I, I'm, and since you've said that, I'm assuming that, uh, we have both made the same decision to separate fantasy films from fantastic films. So, uh, we're talking swords and, and other realms and, uh, flying monkeys, uh, to give uh, something away, okay. um, rather Oops. than, uh, something in, you know, a body switch movie or big, right. which are, yeah. the, uh, these are, the the, 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 the sort of the
1: supernatural is different from, the fantasy and right. that you can uh, make maybe sort of borderline cases as perhaps one or the other of us may do as we move forward. But, um, uh, well, but if fantasy... someone asks
0: us for a, a fantastic 101, that's a different list. That's a different question. Um, as this list goes on, it reflects my preferences more, uh, but it's a 101. So we got to start with, uh, George uh, Melias, the, uh, one of the two sort of founding, Uh, French fathers of cinema. Uh, Famously, he was on the side of the uh, fanciful and the fantastic, where the Lumiere brothers were in the realm of the documentary. He is a stage magician who then uh, made a series of uh, sort of whimsical short films. His most famous one is Science Fantasy. It's a a, a goofy adaptation of uh Verne's uh, from the Earth to the Moon uh, but there's a lot of other ones where there are cavorting mermaids and devils and skeletons and uh and, these and are Egyptian magic was very big yeah um and so uh this is the very beginning of uh cinema and the very beginning of fantastic imagery in cinema and uh sort of sets us up for the question of if this was such a essential thing uh, in movie making in the beginning, why is the list that we're going to give you so short and so obvious? And yeah. next, uh, while we're still in the realm of the silence, uh, an, another precursor film that, uh, we would make you as students, uh, sit through that you might or might not find engaging is the Fritz Lang Siegfried, which is right. uh, closer and its sequel, to crime hills revenge. Right. There were um, two of and them. so these, this is much closer to the, uh, imagery of the fantastic that later uh you will see uh, Tolkien turn into the Lord of the Rings and the uh, sort of fairy tale genre uh develop into uh, both epic fantasy on the written page and sword and sorcery uh, over in the in the pulps since we're in silence uh we will stay in silence for a bit um i would
1: say that the two silence that i would sort of pick uh would be the thief of Baghdad. Uh, by Raoul Walsh, 1924, Douglas Fairbanks famously as the titular Thief of Baghdad, a great movie, still exciting and fun to watch in a way that a lot of Silence are not. And, uh, just a sort of a way to sort of get the sense of what charisma looked like before you could hear it. And that, uh, that Douglas Fairbanks is definitely got it going on. And I am a big fan of Murnau's Faust, which is another, I guess that sort of straddles the boundary of fantasy and horror, but it's very much magician summons a demon and does stuff. So that's sort of pretty fantasy And it also has some amazing imagery that is g- going to echo not just through fantasy film, but through all film. Uh Anytime you see a cityscape fallen under some sort of bad influence, a lot of that is going to come right out of Murnau's Faust. So I would uh, definitely make our students sit through Faust, but as their reward, they would get to watch The Thief of Baghdad again.
0: Yes, uh, Faust has a bit of that European uh, silent uh, movie pacing that is a a bit difficult whereas yeah. FIFA Baghdad it's Raul Walsh it might not have sound but it's it's got it contemporary pacing right um so speaking of flying monkeys uh <laughs> we don't necessarily think of this as a fantasy film of the first order because there's uh, no elves with swords but obviously the wizard of oz uh is in many ways sort of the uh, quintessential uh, movie about a person from our world falling through a hole into another world and becoming the, the problem solver of that world. And, uh, there might not be swords, but there's, uh, uh, buckets of water, uh, to, uh, hurl onto, uh, witches. And there's, uh, uh, you know, Frank James. Baum's, uh, canon is very much a, uh, a, a fantasy world. And, uh, uh, because it's a musical and because it's fun and, and so many of these films are for kids and, This is going to reveal my, you know, in general, my kind of lack of interest in kids movies. But definitely Wizard of Oz is something that you can uh, watch over and over again and has all of the fantasy structures under it, even if it doesn't have what uh, D&D players think of as fantasy tropes.
1: And, of course, uh, uh, as you alluded, L. Frank Baum deliberately wrote the Oz books to be American fantasy, not to be elves with swords, but to be businessmen with magic balloons. Well, that's the American way, uh, and so that's why it's, you know, not of a kind with our sort of uh, regurgitated uh, European stuff. Not that there's anything wrong with that.
0: Right. It makes us wonder, you know, what D&D would be like if you could play a 12th level snake oil salesman. Right. <laughs> 12th, 12th level. For me, I would
1: probably just hop right over uh, the next 20 years and come down in the great age of... Of, um, uh, the sword and sorcery, uh, sword and sandal films. Well, in with... that case,
0: before you do that, uh, let's maintain chronology. All right. Uh, the Thief of Baghdad from 1940 by Michael Powell. That's another good Thief of Baghdad. It's my favorite uh, Thief of Baghdad for its sense of color and, and thrill and adventure. And, uh, is the first thing that I think to me feels like, uh, you know, a fully, because of the sound and the technicolor, a, a fully contemporary, uh, uh, fantasy film that it's you know that what it does uh, I think remains accessible and is uh, super fun and is available in a beautiful Criterion edition.
1: Well there we go. Um while we're while we're on the topic of American fantasy and since you've not let me jump ahead to Sinbad, um I will say The 5000 Fingers of Dr. T which is an American fantasy via Freud, uh, but it's based on a Dr. Seuss teleplay and uh, was directed by Roy Rowland, came out in 1953. It is very much uh, the fantastic. And whether or not you have the notion that a young boy who is transported to a weird and nightmarish fantastic realm where he must use his um, uh, innate uh, decency to overcome badness is the standard fantasy story or just the standard story. I leave that to you and the ghost of Joseph Campbell to argue. Uh, But I will say The Five Thousand Fingers of Dr. T is another visually inventive, fascinating Otherworldly journey that is well worth seeing in your own time.
0: But I interrupted you on your way to Harryhausen. You did. And, uh,
1: but, and so now that we're there, we're going to stay there because holy cow are the Sinbad movies great. Uh, I like all of them. Uh, these are, uh, the creature effects were by the great Ray Harryhausen. Um, seventh voyage of Sinbad is, I believe, the first of the Sinbad movies to confuse things completely. Um, but it is a great one. And I am also a big fan of uh, the Golden Voyage of Sinbad because I believe that one has Doctor Who in it, which is just what you want. Uh, but uh, Seventh Voyage will get you that uh, beginning of the uh, Great Sword and Sandal era, which is hugely visual, hugely exciting. And uh, for a young lad uh, growing up in the 1970s, watching those on Channel 43 in Oklahoma City was the next best thing to being there. And I'm a big fan of all the Sinbad movies, uh, beginning with 1958's seventh voyage of Sinbad directed as though anyone cares who directed them by Nathan Duran, but Ray Harryhausen is the guy, is the name to look out for.
0: Yeah. So Nathan Duran is a, a real sort of journeyman, uh, B and C grade, uh, director whose, uh, name comes up in a bunch of uh, these. I got to see these as a kid on a big screen in, uh, wow. uh movie house, uh, Matinee revivals. Uh, and the one that I would point to from that cycle is not this in bad one because it doesn't have a skeleton fight. Uh, Jason and the Argonauts. Jason and the Argonauts. Album, that was going to be next on my list. Don Chafee, uh, you got to have the skeleton fight. And that is, I think, uh, you know, as close as you get until the uh, modern era of people explicitly deciding to make Conan movies, that's the as close as you get, I think, despite its mythic origins to a sword and sorcery movie.
1: And for those scoring at home, uh, this is the movie that I got on Blu-ray and then had all of my players sit down and watch before we began uh, Poikilla
0: Hellenistica. So my list has another big leap all the way to 1981. Do you have anything uh, before that?
1: Well, probably not, uh, because I think we're landing at the same place.
0: Uh, so interestingly, so far, we've yet to hit anything that is a conventional Anglo-culture uh, fantasy world yet until we get to another classic myth cycle brought compellingly to life in 1981 by John Boorman and that is Excalibur. Right. And I think that is a film that has had an influence on the image bank of a lot of role players ever since uh, it was first created, it has a great cast and uh, a sense of, uh, sort of both the, the grit and the, uh, the weirdness of uh, the uh, non-existent era in which the Atherian legends take place.
1: I suppose that since we're talking about Excalibur, which for my money is still the best Arthur movie, it is maybe worth a side trip to Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones's Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which is a satire of a genre that doesn't exist. Yes. <laughs> there basically were very, very few or no Arthur movies, but everyone knew Arthur well enough that you could do... A parody of Arthur, even without there being a lot of Arthur movies, I guess they're probably and and the killer rabbit
0: makes it fantasy. So the killer rabbit makes it fantasy.
1: Um, King Arthur makes it fantasy as far as I'm concerned. But, uh, the, uh, the notion that, uh, you're, you're able to do that before the genre exists that you're parodying is fantastic in and of itself but yes 1981's Excalibur is the next one that you want to go to and that's the and that's the and the 80s is i think when fantasy really sort of comes into its own either because there's the sort of technology of film uh making just gets so much better in terms of making your special effects and things or because suddenly you have cable and you have to fill a bunch of stuff
0: in cable. Right. And uh, and young people who grew up reading that stuff and watching the Harryhausen movies are now old enough to make and pitch and finance films. Right.
1: And uh in 1981, also, you have, speaking of Terry Gilliam, Time Bandits, another great fantasy movie uh, with a great deal of nonsense and cavorting and devils, but is still, I think it holds up just as a really great sort of, uh you know, what I want to say, a, a tour of. A, a tour of hell in the old school sense where you go through and you see all the various sins sort of laid out before you and then uh get right with god at the end i think that's uh that it, it's kind of an interesting it's it's an interesting movie on a lot of levels in addition to being very right. funny and
0: and uh looking at these as kids movies shockingly dark for a kids oh, yeah. uh, film although i'm sure that uh, Terry Gilliam uh, knows that a lot of the uh, young boys in the audience are uh, very uh, rooting for the parents to have been killed at the end uh, spoiler. So, uh, and we're also noting that a lot of these things are referential or tongue in cheek, where the serious thing that they're commenting on doesn't even really exist. Yeah. Um, and another example of that is Princess Bride, uh, nineteen eighty-seven, right. directed by Rob Reiner, which is a comment on fantasy swashbucklers. Uh, whereas the William Goldman novel is also a meta-text, and uh, and but a meta-text on a genre that also. Only exists in our our dreams, not in not on the shelf of uh, your uh, local video store, available for uh, streaming. But this is, uh, and oddly, this was sort of a flop when it first came out. It was it played like crazy here in the screening that I went to in Toronto because it had just had a successful screening at the Toronto International Film Festival, or perhaps the Festival of Festivals, as it was probably still called at that time. Uh, Toronto got it, but the rest of uh, the English-speaking world uh, took a while to catch up to it, but of now, of course, especially for uh, listeners of this show, it's something that people uh, quote and uh, meme about and is uh, definitely a, a source of the tropes because it's commenting on the tropes uh, that it is uh, uh, giving to you.
1: And I guess since we are talking about a lot of ironic uh, fantasy movies, Um, the the majority of these have either been ironic or lighthearted sort of children's movies that the serious fantasy movie doesn't really get started again until, I mean, it's sort of Faust obviously is super serious, but the sort of fantasy as we understand it, maybe Conan the Barbarian, 1982, John Milius, the immortal John Milius, that's our first straight up no tongues in no cheeks, serious fantasy movie. Uh Excalibur even is sort of taking the piss because of Nicole Williamson's ridiculously fay Merlin, which I love to death, but Excalibur is I'm not going to totally... make an
0: argument that there's no camp in Conan, but I okay.
1: I get your overall Yeah.
0: whole well, point.
1: There's no camp in John Millius's heart. I'll tell you that no. for free.
0: <laughs> there might be some in in James Earl Jones phoning his performance in. Right. <laughs> Bad guy.
1: Right. But again, surely, surely, if once we start getting to phoned in performances, there has never been a fantasy movie by that well, standard. It's,
0: it's not just, uh, there's <laughs> James Earl's, uh, tongue is, is, uh, in his cheek. Is firmly uh, in his but cheek. Nonetheless, but nonetheless. But uh, yes, you're Conan right. Conan takes itself seriously as a film. Uh, Milius took the material
1: seriously, didn't think of it as a cheap ripoff because back in the day there were no cheap, uh, he was trying to make a, a real movie that would, uh, do, uh, a blockbuster business. And in fact, he did. Um, and, uh, he cast an actor who was not good enough to be taking himself unseriously yet. Uh, the lovely and talented Arnold Schwarzenegger. This was his big blowout, uh, role. And if ever actor and role have come together better than Conan the Barbarian and Arnold, I can't imagine what it is. And he even got a lot, I think of the Howardian source material kind of right, uh, it, you know, obviously modulo making a movie instead of writing a bunch of, uh, two cent a word fantasy stories. But the, the sort of the, the general... Uh, doom-laden Spinglerian despair that Howard, uh, inhabited, at least in the course of the, of the stories, is very much what John Milius lives in all day, every day. So, uh, it, it turns out that the director also fit the material, which is again, something that probably doesn't happen very often, uh, or at least doesn't happen until maybe Peter Jackson attempting Lord of the Rings, right? right?
0: It, it's the, it's the most metal of the, uh, films that we've talked about so far. That um, is true. I would be remiss if i did not mention chinese ghost story from 1987 by uh ching sui uh this is uh just part of the uh much bigger corpus of uh hong kong and now chinese uh fantasy movies the the wuxia genre it really uh really warrants its own segment which i think we've already done uh yeah. but it would be foolish of us not to mention that chinese cinema has a much richer tradition of fantasy movies and a much deeper catalog of things that we could, and in fact, in the past have recommended. So this, uh, sort of classic hapless scholar, uh, versus ghosts with, uh, warriors and, uh, a trip to the underworld is going to stand in as, uh, my little uh, push pin to note that, uh, no, we didn't forget that important, uh, fact about fantasy cinema. And interestingly, the year before a Chinese
1: ghost story, uh, in our tradition of fantasy films commenting on things no one has seen yet, Big Trouble in Little China comes out in 1986. John Carpenter, uh, everyone listening to this can quote the entire movie from memory, so we probably don't have to go into too much detail, but it is his tri- tribute, I guess, to the previous wave of wuxia and the previous wave of Hong Kong film before Chinese ghost story begins that sort of. Fantastic Renaissance.
0: Yes, he would have seen Zoo uh, Warriors of the Magic Mountain and some things that are earlier than and some of the uh, Shaw Chinese Brothers stuff. And, yeah.
1: And this of course is a straight up fantasy. It's got wizards, it's got a hero, it's got um a, a bumbling hapless sidekick as the audience identification character. It's got uh everything that you want uh in a fantasy film plus trucks. And who doesn't love trucks? Everybody loves trucks. Uh it's it's a great movie. Probably Maybe up there with Excalibur as one of the two best movies that we're going to get to on our list. It gets, I think, unfairly knocked a little bit because it's also a comedy, but doing comedy and adventure simultaneously is, it's not easy, Robin. Uh, people generally can't do it, but I would, uh, definitely put a, my own push pin in for Big Trouble.
0: Uh, and do you have anything that precedes, uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy? I mean, you
1: can sort of nod, uh, towards Labyrinth, which is another children's fantasy that really sort of wins bigger than you would think that it should. Um and I would say that uh you also sort of need to give a little tip of the hat to the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, which demonstrated that, yeah, if you sort of want to make a fantasy movie, you can do it. And uh it's uh, it's possible to do it in a genre that Hollywood already understands, much as uh, Big Trouble uh, began as a Western, I think, in the original script, and then became its own bizarre, wonderful thing.
0: Uh So, of course, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy is the thing that takes epic fantasy as we know it, uh, puts it up on the screen for all of its... uh It is not worn as well as uh, you would think, in part because of the Hobbit trilogy of which only a third of which I managed to slog through. And I think that that, uh, the, when you see that, you, and then go back and look at Lord of the Rings, you see the yeah. place that Jackson he was heading trend. and are less forgiving of, of stuff that mm-hmm. actually did play okay when you first saw it. But, but certainly that, you know, and the, the last one won a boatload of Oscars and that's what cemented the, uh big epic fantasy is a thing that A could be put on the screen and B that lots of people would uh, go and see and so any other fantasy movies made after that are going to owe uh something to the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And I guess while
1: we're putting pins in things for the overseas rich traditions of fantasy, um and anime we haven't really talked about animation because it's kind of its own thing. Uh but I think we should at least give a a, a salute to uh, Princess Mononoke and the other Studio Ghibli children's fantasies uh, th- that are also grown up people fantasies.
0: Yeah, and for growing animated, up. there's a bunch of Disney films we would have right. to go back yeah, and, yeah, and We'd and have to stuff. go back through. But, uh, but that's,
1: th- but that's also feeding, I think, into people's consumption of fantasy, uh, in a way that, as you say, the Disney animated fairy tales also fed into people's consumption of fantasy.
0: Um, and of course, if we were running a, uh, an actual film class, we would then have to nod to Harry Potter again Ugh. for kids not totally up my alley, only but the good
1: children get to see uh the good children get to clep out of Harry Potter, or at least only watch part three,
0: right? Because is this is good movie. We're going uh, both. I'm sure make the hipster choice and say the good one is the one by Alfonso Cuarón, but because it is also the correct choice, uh, Harry Potter and the, and the prisoner of Azkaban from 2004. Uh, the thing that is strong about that one is that it is just really tight. It's, uh, infuses, uh, the series with a sense of atmosphere that it, that then departs as soon as Quaron does, yep. <laughs> uh, but it doesn't have all of the characters standing slack jawed in awe of the uh, CGI effects and future theme park. It's just a really tight film that uh, I can tell you stands on its own because I haven't watched the rest of
1: those films. Right. And, uh, yeah, exactly. So it must stand on its own, uh, because we finished, right. I, w- I would say that, uh, in our theoretical film class, we were probably also making people watch Pan's Labyrinth, uh, by Guillermo del Toro, which is a movie explicitly about fantasy.
0: Um, uh, I, yeah, have, I would, I would put that in my, uh, weird tales class, but, uh, there are lots of people who class it as fantasy
1: and well, it's a movie about fantasy, regardless right. of whether it is a fantasy film, right? Because We don't want
0: to get all definitional
1: here. And we certainly don't want to uh, take up a ton of time with Pan's Labyrinth because my problems with uh, Guillermo del Toro do not start or end with Pan's Labyrinth, but they certainly continue right on through it. Uh, but that said, it is visually inventive and beautiful in a way that a lot of del Toro's films are and probably worth watching just as a sort of hipster commentary on fantasy, at the very least, uh from the early 21st century.
0: Now, 10 years from now people who talk about fantasy cinema will be talking about the effect that Game of Thrones uh, had or didn't have on the genre. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is, first of all, not complete as we speak, so impossible to evaluate. It could go one way or it could go the other way. We'll see how it goes. Um, But certainly in terms... And uh, speaking of things that, you have to say, for all of its many flaws, it uh, at least presents... Uh, fantasy as an adult genre, uh, perhaps, uh, uh, and not, I'm not just talking about the abundant nudity, but about these are adult characters, uh, doing with adult c- concerns with adult concerns doing, uh, you know, committing adult atrocities uh, often. And, uh, you know, brings us closer to, uh, what is on the page in many uh, newer fantasy works where it is an adult genre capable of dealing with adult concerns. And I would certainly, uh, love to see. Uh, the books that are getting picked up to be adapted move away from, you know, YA and kids books into other uh, adult works that happen to be uh, set in that genre. Right.
1: I guess, uh, to close us out, uh, because we surely must be, uh, closing out at this point. Um, I want to mention a movie that is not technically a fantasy film, but is so much better than I thought it was going to be that I have to sort of give it a shout out here. Uh, it is Ever After, starring Drew Barrymore as basically Cinderella, directed by Andy Tennant, uh, from 1998. It was a movie that I, I, I forget if I saw it on cable or I saw it somehow. And it was literally a, well, this is on. I will keep it on. And as <laughs> I kept watching it, I kept being amazed at how actually good it was. And it was a, uh, it's an, a, it's basically it's a romantic drama. There's no supernatural elements in it at all. It de-supernaturalizes the fantasy in the way that in fact, uh, if you go back, uh, uh, the guy who wrote *Jason of the Argonauts*, Apollonius of Rhodes, was doing, uh, in his uh, day job as librarian of Alexandria. But the movie is a fantasy in all of its beats, in that, and it acts as sort of a skeleton key between the romantic drama and the fantasy story, specifically the fairy tale. And I think it may be the best fairy tale movie ever made, even though, again, it has no. Fantastic elements to it, and certainly not animated because I think Sleeping Beauty still kills uh the the original uh Disney one, but it is an amazingly good fairy tale movie, even it if it technically as Robin would remind me, is not a fantasy film, but I think it deserves a shout out because when are we going to get to uh romantic drama one oh one Robin probably right. never
0: that that's an that's an always rewatch for a lot of people it's uh... right. Uh, okay, well, uh, we've uh, we've covered the genre, and uh, it'll be interesting to see in the years ahead whether uh, there are more things that are closer to Excalibur or games Game of Thrones, or whether it's going to continue to be dominated by sort of tongue in cheek things and things aimed at children. But for now, that's our one or one. It's time to escape to our final segment.
1: Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness
0: with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing
1: game, you play those agents.
0: Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time.
1: The long-whispered-of slipcase set has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agent's Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the Game Moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the
0: Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of Eons Pre-Human.
1: Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and sourcebooks.
0: A Universe of Cosmic Terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? We approach a shimmering portal, and it's not clear initially where the shimmering portal is leading us, except, oh, wait a minute, I can see through the shimmer. Oh, there's our old friends, the gray alien and the Nordic alien. They're enjoying a kombucha, and they're dissing the reptoid, and there, further in the distance is the alien big cat screaming in the moor. We must be in the Liptony hut. In fact, this time we're in the most mysterious of huts at the behest of patron-backer Steve Sick, who wants to know about Sumerian stargates. So if you look at ancient Sumerian tablets, which have a sort of a distinctive kind of freeze-style uh, art, uh, sometimes you will see uh, one of the deities, often Anana, uh, the fertility deity, uh, and you will see uh, what traditional blinkered scholars have thought of as her rising from the waves and this is shown on the tablets with sort of uh, swirly things on the other side of her. Uh, whenever I rise from the wave, as uh, I have swirly things on other side of me, it's true. This is known. But it turns out that others have seen through this and have identified these as stargates. And not only are these, uh, uh, you know, an, an interesting uh, footnote, the idea that there are, are portals that can uh, teleport you through uh, time and space and reality, but it turns out. This is the real cause of the Iraq war. So, uh, Ken, clue us in to the Sumerian Stargate elliptonic conspiracy theory.
1: As you adduce, it begins by people who do not accept the blinkered vision of every Sumeriologist and uh, art historian that those are uh, pillars or representations of the square abzu, which was the sort of freshwater... A sea that was at the center of uh, uh Sumerian temples and survives if you go into the Bible, you can see that there is a sea in the uh Temple of Solomon that is built uh to be the the symbolic water of chaos that uh good old God uh beats down with his beaten down the uh Symbolic sea in, uh, these temples was called the Abzu because that was the name of the primordial waters of chaos from which the gods emerged. Uh, Inanna, as you point out, Enki is another popular, uh, emerger god, uh, who shows up and sets things right. And the notion that the stargates are not in Egypt as we all thought, but are actually in Sumer seems to, as far as I can tell, have sort of been given its own juice by the Iraq war. Uh, if you'll remember, uh, we have, I'm sure, talked on this very show about a terrific book by Lynn Picknett and Clive Prince called the Stargate Conspiracy, which debunks all of the other books about ancient Egyptian magical woo-woo Stargate uh, alignment theory and says that those books are themselves a conspiracy to make us believe that aliens will come through a Stargate someday and set up the EU or something. I don't know what the aliens are going to do, <laughs> but uh, Picknett and Prince did. But apparently, our failure as a civilization to invade Egypt has caused the Stargate theory to drift to Iraq. And sure enough, Iraq does indeed have giant exciting temples and woo-woo aplenty. There is a, uh, what do I want to say, theorist named Elizabeth Verg, who is sort of the point person on the uh, Sumerian Stargates. Uh, you can see her quoted as saying that uh, the real Stargate is under the city of Eridu, Which I think in earlier versions of her work, she said, we don't know where it is. Of course, we know where it is, unless it's a cover up and real Eridu is somewhere else. But (laughs) again, if you're going to start believing science, then why waste your time with Stargate theory? That's what I say. So the the Eridu is where it might be, or it might be in Uruk, which is another very old Sumerian city, or it might be underneath an American military base, because it turns out the United States, has, uh, up until we left Iraq in 2011, uh, had a gigantist military base. Pretty much sitting right next to good old Ur of the Chaldees, which you remember also from your Bible, as well as from Sumerian history, being the hometown of Gilgamesh and something of a late coming city in the Sumerian stakes, which would make it not my candidate for where the Stargate is. But I do have to say that if you're going to say that the United States invaded Iraq to get to the star base, you do need an ancient city that is right near an American military establishment.
0: Right. And that base is Ali base. Uh, uh-huh. near Nasiriyah which is uh which was where the 407th air expeditionary group uh was stationed
1: right and the the base uh sits there by the um uh by the ziggurat and maintained uh basically it, it was an air base so it maintained all the flights that would go into the actual combatty part of Iraq and uh take care of that like i say after american troops pulled out of iraq in 2011 uh, There may be some advisors or something working uh, around somewhere, but we certainly don't have the giant uh, military establishment in Iraq, which can only say, I guess, that we moved the Stargate. We took it with us or, or, or blew it up or blew it up. That America. would be the smart thing to do. Would be to blow it up so that the aliens can't get us, but right. I, I also totally believe in a notion where it was disassembled and is being reassembled under a super collider somewhere right now.
0: Uh, it could be, you know, in, uh, uh, somewhere in the, in the, uh, southwestern desert at this point. Mm-hmm. I suppose if you have a Stargate, your question is, do we take this to Area 51? Because that is already the place where we take this stuff. Or is that like one weird alien artifact too many and you might be afraid of them sort of harmonizing together is it like peanut butter and asparagus i mean they're
1: great separately but
0: don't combine them now in real life what you do is you would look for uh, a congressman who uh needs uh military expenditures a a
1: stargate in his district (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly so like a lot of conspiracy theories this satisfies a need to make sense of something that made less sense on its face after a while and that is why did the U.S. go into Iraq? And so you can, well, no wonder the uh, intelligence of uh, weapons of mass destruction uh, wound up not uh, uh, panning out. Even though Saddam Hussein was uh, foolishly, in retrospect, it turns out acting as if he had them yeah. it turned out to be a bad move on on his part. But you it, know, it turns
1: out just a little word of advice to our listeners: don't you know, pretend you have weapons of mass destruction if you do not actually have. Yeah. Weapons of mass destruction and exactly. real ones, not just sarin gas, apparently. Yeah,
0: especially when people are, uh, chomping at the bit to uh, invade you, but you know, uh, broader perspective age. was neither never his, his forte really, but this, uh, makes sense of another, uh, of a narrative that otherwise is, is messy and, and annoying like all the rest of real life. Um, so that sort of makes sense from, uh, from that perspective. And, uh, you know, it turns out that if you start seeing stargates in uh, Sumerian tablets, you can go on from there and pretty much any Sumerian tablet, if you look hard enough, there's something that you can explain as a stargate on it. And in fairness to the crazy people,
1: their ranks include the at one time transport minister of Iraq, uh, who said that uh, the Sumerians built the world's first airport in Iraq uh, for the aliens to travel there from Pluto. Now, that's not a stargate. That's a Plutonian airport. But again... Uh, once you have plutonian airport technology, surely Stargate technology is just a hop, skip, and a jump, uh, past you.
0: Right. Uh, and certainly the, the broader idea that anything archaeological from an ancient civilization is also alien tech, of course, has been, uh, well shot into the, the bloodstream of, uh, a conspiracy. So that's, uh, uh, that's not a, a giant leap. So obviously the, the answer to how do we gamify this is... Put
1: we... a Stargate in southern Iraq.
0: Yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I and wonder, what, wonder what pop culture property would remind us of, oh, Stargate. Yeah, right. This is people saying, oh, the movie Stargate is based on reality. I don't know if it's the movie. If I was going to pick a movie to say, oh, this is real, I'm not sure Stargate is it, but uh, I'm sure defenders of Stargate will jump up and say, no, no, it should totally be the basis of a crazy conspiracy. So what would be the inobvious answer, right? The obvious answer is, yep, it, it's a Stargate and the Sumerians mm-hmm. were aliens, and it goes to an alien ultra-terrestrial realm. Is, uh, is that the way we want to play it? Or is that, uh, you know, an example of something that's too obvious since the characters know going in that it's supposed to be a Stargate. Maybe it should be something else when you, when you get there and, and investigate it in your game. I mean, my instincts and, uh, long time listeners will be nodding along
1: is to do a slight, uh, what they call a modified limited hangout. That the Stargate conspiracy is, as Picknett and Prince have suggested, a cover-up. That the notion that there is a Stargate is itself the conspiracy. Because what it actually is, is a method, a modality, a ad for summoning Azathoth. And so, when you build it, it destroys your civilization. Because, hey, guess what? There's no Sumerians around anymore. And that's what happens. And the conspiracy is a bunch of nihilist uh, uh, meme creators, uh, esotericists possibly even, who are attempting to get the government to find these ruined pieces of attempts to contact Azathoth and build them so as to open the passage for Azathoth or I guess the minions of the outer dark, if you insist on not being Azathoth uh, and that that is the conspiracy and that the conspiracy is actually a sort of nihilistic, suicide urge that uh, typifies our uh, late civilization as we hurtle ever towards technological singularity and emotional nullification. Uh, Right. It's it's a membrane shredder. Right. And so uh, the the so-called Stargate is simply how you destroy your civilization when you're done with it. Um, uh, and then wait for, in the Sumerians' case, the Babylonians, but in our case, maybe the Coleopterans to come along and, and, and pick up the pieces.
0: So you've got your, your race against time as you investigate the... Uh, the Stargate, uh, you've got your uh, initial discovery of the conspiracy theory. Uh, at first, you think it's uh, uh, just uh, the work of crackpots, but then you find more and more evidence of it. That means you have to go to uh, Iraq, which is uh, still uh, not a safe place. Uh, and there are probably people there who want the pieces of their Stargate back so that when they find uh, you poking around and asking questions, that may attract uh, undue and unwanted attention. And then finally you realize what's really going on and you've got your race against time uh to get back to uh you know these uh, uh proving grounds uh near Oklahoma where you have to uh, uh get there and stop them from from finally assembling and hitting the big red button uh before it uh, rips everything apart and admits uh, the outer dark or Azathoth or a vampire god or uh, whatever or it whatever. is yeah. that's going to come on through uh the portal so on that climactic note Perhaps that could be the exciting balls to the wall finish of a long that running campaign. Be, yeah,
1: the the apocalyptic climax with the with the uh, with the enormous uh, particle accelerator that spins around to power up the Stargate as you open up the 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 path to the Abzu.
0: Right, and so now that we're connecting the beginning of our podcast to the end of our podcast, we'd better stand up in a ring like a Stargate and move back before we're sucked into the vortex. Uh, but we'll be back a mere week from now uh, with more uh, similar. Erudite nonsense. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors! Atlas Games Pell Press Ask Fagel Arc Dream Dark Tower And Pro Fantasy Software Music, as always, is by James Semple Audio editing by
1: Rob Borges Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com
0: backslash canandrobin Keep this podcast dimensional portals in working order by joining such Patreon backers as Andrew Lallibert Andrew Miller Steve Kay Alexander Zimmerman And Anderson Todd Snag Ken and Robin apparel and other area-type merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Wear such shirts as Start With Earth. On Twitter he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.